Have they trust us completely? Yeah. They hope that we share. Care for them, cause they smile so sweetly. We got to pick them up. And never do them any wrong. No, no. We got to pick our children up. Yes, and we've got to get into the next program here on 3CR. 3CR, your only, your only radio left. And it's time for Left After Breakfast. Susanna Duffy here with you this morning on another beautiful, beautiful... Ah, look, I love this weather. Beautiful. And, uh, well, is there any better time of year to be in Melbourne? Better than summer. But good morning to everyone and good morning, of course, to... Glenn, our resident historian, his and her historian, our historian. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Susanna. And of course, good morning to listener. Once again on an autumn Friday morning here in lovely old Melbourne town. Mm. In the old bear brass. The old bear brass. How long was it called bear brass? For a decade or so? It's, I have no idea. It's it predates the separation of the colonies in 1851. But um, yeah, I should do some homework. Because Robin Anir wrote a great book called Bear Brass. I've got the book on my bookshelf. Yes, but I've actually I read get, it. I gave you a loan of it. No, I brought a copy. Well, I gave you a loan of bear brass. Did you know? Well, I'm, yes, your memory's sharper than mine because I, well, I, I mine's still in the bag. <laughs> Well, I write down where I get, where I send my books, where my books go. I have a whole, an old-fashioned card file box, and Bear Brass. I know I learned it, but it was some years. You ago. lent me some books on Celtic ladies many, many moons ago, but I don't recall the Bear Brass one. Yes, I had great pleasure in giving you a loan of the Bear Brass. Anyway, when... But I think, unfortunately, you were between houses at between domiciles at the time. Domiciles. I'm very domiciliary, actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, today I'd like to be invited. Goldstein. You've heard of Vida Goldstein? Of course. Everyone knows Vida. Well, let's discuss in more detail today. No, not that I know all that much about her. I just, you know. Well, she's no longer here. She passed away in 1949, but she was born way back on April 13, 1869 at Portland. The eldest child of Jacob, Robert Yanis Goldstein, and his wife, Isabella Hawkins. And uh, they lived in Portland, been warned for a while. Her parents ran a general store. Then I moved to Melbourne. I spent time being involved in Scots Church, the Australian Church. And the both parents, um, Isabella and Jacob, were very involved in community activities. Um, trying to, you know, and they looked at charity in a different sort of way. Because charity in those days was giving help to the poor. You know, The poor people yeah. will give you a handout. And I thought, well, hang on, let's, uh, charity should be scientifically organised. Like, why are people poor? What's causing it? Is it maybe slums? Is it lack of education? Is it poor housing and health skills? And I said, yeah, charity is important, but let's look at why it's occurring. Let's, you know, let's tackle the causes. And her parents influenced Vida Goldstone. She got these, uh, her lifetime ideas were formulated in those early years from her parents' direction and caring and supporting others. She uh, spent time at the PLC, where she matriculated in 1886. And um, in the early 1890s, the bank crashes. That was the, um, the what was that called? The land boomers. And the price of wool was falling, and but it price, wasn't actually falling anyway. Well, the price of land was falling. Thomas Bent by name and Bent by nature, these types in the colony of Victoria led to this huge, um, a lot of speculation stock, and then the wheels fell off, and a lot of places closed down. People lost their savings, people couldn't go to school. And the Goldstone sisters... Of course, they had to pay to go to school. Well, what happened then, the Goldsteins went to PLC, the prestigious PLC, in the 1890s, um, her sisters, Lena, Elsie, and Eileen, set up a co-ed prep school at Elmer Road St Kilda to teach kids. And I don't know much about the, this prep school, but uh, the forces have this school based on like um, Christian social justice principles, you know, and we um, we teach you regardless of your gender and your income. And like, oh, these are sort of ideas which were important because on a separate issue, uh, Victoria led Australia in terms of secular education. I'm on a tangent here. I was doing some. I'm doing an article for a journal, but um, in 1872, the Free Compulsory and Secular Education Act was passed in Victoria. It was the first state in Australia of a free education system. Free, compulsory, and, and secular. secular. Remember that, listener. Secular. We live in a secular country. 
We mm. live, our, we, that's where we live. Australia is a secular country. And Victoria led the way of the Act in 1872 and gradually over the years, the government funding of religious schools was reduced. <laughs> hasn't totally ceased, unfortunately, but Victoria started the process of reducing it. Because until 1872, it was a dog's dinner. There was no real income, no real structures, you know. Anyway, Vida followed her mother into becoming a confirmed suffragist. She helped organise organisations like the, um, the National Anti-Sweating League, the Criminology Society, and she helped organise the big women's suffrage petition. Now, I don't know, listeners might know more than I do. In 1890, it was a women's suffrage petition. And I don't know how many people signed, but it was a big event. Um, we also had the uh, activities like the Queen Victoria Hospital Appeal for Aid, which was involved in. So when, when was that? 1890s. And by the end of the 1890s, she became the leader of the radical women's movement in Victoria. She was unsurpassed as the main figurehead in the movement. The speaker, the thought process, it was all hers. And for the next decade, her priority was suffrage. We know she went to the US in 1902. She spoke on women's suffrage. She um, led the world there. And Australia got the vote for women in 1902. The first nation in the world for the women to have the vote was Aotearoa. Across the Tasman, and we filed not long after in 902. But because Australia allowed women to vote federally, it didn't happen in the state elections. So Victoria took a few years to follow Australia. So as of 902, women could vote in Australia. But in Victoria, women could not vote until 908. And um, Fire got was a key player. She um, was one of the first ladies in Australia to run for parliament. She ran in 903 and she formed the Women's Federal Political Association. Hmm? No, I was just thinking the Women's Federal Political Association. Yeah, that was the group she was a key member of. She received over 50,000 votes in 1903, and she also set up, as well as the Women's Federal Political Association, she took the word federated organisation, and it was the Women's Political Association Australia-wide. Uh, the paper, the Women's Sphere, there was also lecture tours around Australia, and she finally succeeded in 1908 in getting suffrage in Victoria for women voters. Uh, after women won the right to vote, uh, Vida returned to the federal sphere. She again ran for parliament in 910 and 1917 for the Senate, 1913 1914 for the House of Reps. And she polled well every year, apart from 1917, when the, uh, Australia was in the midst of the, uh, the conscription campaigns, and her, as an ardent opponent of the war, lost votes. Um, she, was, um, she played a key role in a lot of campaigns, arbitration, conciliation, equal rights, equal pay. Uh, women to have right of official posts. Um, she opposed capitalism. She supported production for use, not profit, and public control of public utilities. She opposed widespread policy. Um, yeah, she was eternally a, a politician. She had a political campaign and worked hard for it. She uh, helped form organisations such as the National Council of Women, the Victorian Women's Public Servants Association, Women Writers Clubs. She worked for social reforms. Uh, raising the age of marriage and consent, new laws on land tax, food adulteration, and the swelling of women workers. She lowered polys. She directly influenced many acts. She helped see the establishment of the Children's Court Act. She wrote in articles such as, you know, the magazine called The Nineteenth Century and After. It was a very strange title. She, well, it was obviously important. It was. She wrote in the um, an article called Socialism of Today, The Australian Viewpoint. And she was probably, of all the Australian women involved with emancipation and suffrage movements of the day, she was the only one to gain a international reputation. She gained tuning in 911, and her speeches drew huge crowds. Alice Henry wrote, Vida Golding was the biggest thing that was happening to women in England for a long time. And so not just in Victoria, not just Australia, in the US, the UK, her influence is being felt far and wide as she spruced social justice, social reforms to make the world a better place, not just for women, but for all of us. And the war broke out, World War I, the Great Trade War, and she was uncompromisingly a pacifist. She formed the Peace Alliance, the Women's Peace Army. She also set up stuff like women's unemployment bureaus, women's rural industries, and it's not just opposing what whole of issues relating to gender she was still involved in. And she Sorry, was a, what was that? She involved the Women's Peace Army and the Women's Rural Industries and Women's Unemployment Campaigns. I'm surmising because there's no unemployment in those days, or maybe there's some for male breadowners, not for females. She pushed women to get the doll. 
So he's pushed in a range of spheres, a range of areas of influence. After the war, she went to the Women's Peace Conference in Zurich and in three years travelling in Europe. And at this point, she sort of backed down from her role of Australian politics. She, um, she became more of an internationalist. She saw, well, yeah, we can make gains in Victoria. We can make gains in Australia. There's a world to win. Yeah, let's not just limit ourselves. Let's go beyond our national boundaries. Let's go around the world. And uh, look, she became a bit less active, but she soon was active behind the scenes, promoting pacifism, a sisterhood of women around the world. She lobbied for reforms such as improved provision of birth control, naturalisation laws, opposing wars, and she was a very deeply committed internationalism. And she wanted an international brotherhood based on socialism, Christian ethics. She never joined a party. She was in the ALP. She was in the CPA. She didn't even call herself a socialist, even though she believed in socialism. She said she was a Democrat, with vision to society about equality of men and women, with no injustice in this world. She had, um, she continued to, her public appearance had faded away after the 1920s, but behind the scenes she kept working hard, writing, thinking. She um, did have some strange traits in the latter years. We all do, I suppose. She um, became. We all do. Was that what you said? Oh, we all do. Yes, I've met some strange traits. As Eve, I've got some strange traits. We also have our views. Of the world change, and um, she became aligned with the Christian Science thief, Faith. Oh dear. Oh yes, I'm <laughs> the same. And she was one stage a reader and a president of its church. Now, these things happen, you know. You go a bit dippy in your old age, you reckon. Well, I didn't say that, but I said you you change. I said dippy, because you'd have to be. There's a famous 3CR presenter who once said, you don't judge a footballer by their last game. And they're right. Archbishop Mannix did a lot of good things. His last 30 years were pretty quite horrendous. But his first 60-plus were quite good, and that's what happens. People do make these decisions. Look, they should be put out to grass, out in the long grass, when they get past it and start frothing stupid things. You should say, all right, that's enough, love. That's enough, Dan. That's enough, Vida. Yeah, well, she she spent her later years living with her sisters, Alice and Eileen, and um, she was a, a trailblazer. She provided leadership, inspiration. She was a visionary idealist. In her view of public life and politics, she said, in essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty. All things charity. She was humane, kind, sincere. She was public-spirited. She was a Christian, a born reformer, who wanted solutions to complex problems. She offered people the wit and eloquence of an orator, but knowledge and forthright of a statesperson, and the devotion and courage of a brave woman. She died August 5, 1949 in South Yarra. It's a long life. She was 80. She was, hang on, she was 80 years and four months. So... So she was 80. That wasn't as long as I thought. 80 is and foremost. But her influence goes on. And, um, yeah, I think it's important. We, we forget these people in Australia. We, we think, oh, yeah, Australia's so boring, you know. What have we achieved apart from, you know, Menzies and Don Bradman? Please. There's <laughs> Australia well beyond and, those, those white bread types of Protestants. And Peter Norman. Who? Oh, and, but, oh, well, there was a thing not that I read the other day about him being recognised. Uh, look, for a lot, I've discussed Pen Norman twice on this show the last few decades, the last decade at least, and he was snubbed, he was ostracised for his actions in with Tommy Smith and um, Carlos, John Carlos in 68. The AOC bypassed him as a political punishment, the but in death he's finally uh, been recognised. Olympic Committee mm. bypassed him as punishment, yes. Because mm. he had the temerity to stand up for what was right. Mm. Oh, well, there are some... Funny that you mentioned Queen Victoria Hospital. Yes. And you had a strange date. The date was back in 1897, the Jubilee fundraiser of the Queen Victoria Hospital appeal. I was going to say, well, the Queen Victoria Hospital was built with money raised from women in Victoria. And was that the year, was it? I just know that my nana gave them £100. And it was a hell of a lot of money. Because they used to talk a lot about, oh, yes, well, Mary Ellen gave them a hundred quid, you know. And um, it was just, even when I, uh, God, some years later, I think, something or other, and I went to hospital, not to the Queen Vic, and I was, you know, sort of pulled off of that, saying, don't forget your nana gave them a hundred pound. Mm. You have the right to go there. And, you know, I think a hundred pound was a lot of money. Uh, at the a turn year's of, wages, possibly. Of the 20th to the 25th. 
of the 19th century, the 20th century. Well, it's past years wise. Look, I don't know if the Queen Victoria Hospital appeal was to commence the process or to do further work on an existing building. I'm not sure have been when to, it commenced. To, may have been to build it, maybe. Look, not, I, if anyone knows when the, when the Queen Vic was built, which makes me really, really cross when I know what's happened to it now. <laughs> it's a shopping complex now. When I know what's happened to it now. Although, My dentist is here. So. And they gave it to those, gave over the actual management of it to this bunch of middle-class women. I'm My sorry, but they did. Here. My dentist um, Look, Queen Vic Hospital, as we know, closed 87, 88, when Monash Medical Centre opened. I'm just thinking about Melbourne as I'm talking, thinking. I can do both occasionally. Can you? Gee, Real, I have trouble. Real Melbourne, as we know, opened in the 40s. It was open earlier, but the current building was opened in the 40s. Um, St Vinnie's, when did St Vinnie's open? That's an old structure. It's an old Catholic hospital, mm. and it was uh, started in the 19th century. Because the original Melbourne hospital was oh, – I'm having a blank here. The yeah. Royal Melbourne was either built or done up to, uh, to – It was done up. To help the boys from the U.S. Correct. Armies. During Camp Pal days. Yeah, they were in, yes, but they were injured and they were brought back mm. to have their – they were fighting in – PNG. Well, the Pacific, mm. yeah. Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, and rural Melbourne hospitals refurbished, rebuilt in the 1940s to help our American friends from to Camp help, Pell. To help, to help our American friends. And I have my own personal story about our American friends. Please tell. Because when I was a very small girl, I was going to have my tonsils out. I've had those done. I was going to have my tonsils out. And I was, um, for some reason, they were going to do it in Royal Melbourne. Must have been the, the spot to go to be have your tonsils out. And I was looking forward to it because I thought, oh, then I get to eat ice cream all day. It, yes. it never occurred to me that I'd be so bloody sore I wouldn't be able to eat anything. Yes, I just, been there. I, I, I can just eat all this ice cream. And I thought, oh, I could, I visualised all these cardboard boxes of Peter's ice cream. Because yeah. they used to come in a cardboard box. They did indeed, it? yes. But at the last moment I couldn't because they brought in a whole pile of boys from the Korean War. From the yes. US, uh, whoever, you know, defence forces from USA. And by the time they got round to looking at me again, they said, oh, there's nothing wrong with their tonsils. doesn't have to, have to have them out at all. So I was lucky I escaped having my tonsils removed. And I say that's why now I don't get colds or flu, much less a flu, because they're the first line of defence. And anyone who hasn't got their tonsils, they go down with these illnesses. Whereas the people I know, I've got, I know the occasional person who mm. still has tonsils, they don't get them. Why did people remove tonsils? Oh, because doctors needed to have money. I had mine removed in 1969. I had my doctors tonsils removed. money. I recall eating ice cream. My parents brought me a comic book of dinosaurs in it. So we're in a dinosaur comic book, eating ice cream, and being in the hospital back in 1969. They used to take out your appendix too as soon as look no, at you. Mom went down. I had my adenoids drained and tonsils removed in 1969. Well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't necessary. But I don't doctors, think it was. Doctors got – remember, there was no Medicare. Oh, no. There was no money bank. You had to pay and pay cash up front. So that's what parents did. I'm intrigued, you know. to, as we're talking, which year did the British Medical Association become the Australian Medical Association? I don't know. Well, the AMA wasn't always the AMA. Was it the, Was it the BMA? No, it was the BMA, and it was still the BMA after World War II. It might have changed in the 50s. It might have changed prior to decimal currency. But I'm I'm just thinking as I'm talking, I've done it twice now, uh, when did the BMA become the AMA? Because it wasn't always the AMA. I'm just thinking back on charity and my nana coughing up a fortune. God, look, I would have bought a couple of houses, wouldn't it? Or at least one house. Anyway, my... Those days. My... Um, Great grandmother believed in charity too. She um, was a druid. I don't mean a oh, druid Edwards, yeah. dressed in a white dress, and you know, I mean for uh, it was a society, mm-hmm. yeah. the druid society, like the Royal Order of Oddfellows. Yes, but this was, friendly, the friendly societies. What they called it? Yeah, but they it was it was like a little back. They they gave it. They handled money for people who couldn't handle, like an early sort of credit union, yeah, they really, were, yeah. stuff like that. And she was very involved with the. Um, Druids and gave her own personal. Well, she had four pubs. She, she she could afford to cough up money to give they towards called? the poor around North Melbourne and West Melbourne. Well, they're called friendly societies or mutual aid societies. They were big in the latter part of the 19th century. 
I it's don't like know. They, they sort of coincide with the growth of the mechanics institutes. Um, I yes. can't, a lady wrote a book last year, I can't even name, on the history of mechanics institutes in Victoria. Which was set up to educate boys of the That's working right. class. So, and what a brilliant right. idea that was. So the, what an absolutely brilliant idea. I'm saying, but they, they coincide. The friendly, friendly societies and mechanics institutes were important steps forward in that later part of the 19th century. And David, Victoria led Australia. I said to you, um, we led Australia for education. 1872, the Free Compulsory and, and secular, secular Education and Act. Secular. We didn't happen in New South Wales or Tasmania or Queensland. It was Victoria. You know, the 88 we have day, led so much education, in Victoria, land we? reform. We have always been the leaders in this nation. Always. We always have. You go, put, <clears throat> we do. We have we have led social change in every context. Put that in context. your pipe and smoke it, you Sydney Remember you used to say that as a kid, oh, oh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's an old adage. Yes. Look, speaking of leading Australia, oh, yeah. tomorrow there's a conference, which I'm going to be oh, I'm, I'm part, I'm part of organising it. It's the, when we voted, no, sorry, I shouldn't do it. Don't when, sing on air, please. When we voted no, <laughs> Democratic opposition to the war. And it's about the 1916 campaigns. And it's going to be held tomorrow from 9am to half past for its site works in Saxon Street, Brunswick. We'll discuss Vita Goldstone. Saxon Street, Brunswick, yep. yes. It's off Sydney, but it's parallel to Sydney Row behind St Ambrose Church, just mm-hmm. off Glenline Road. And we'll discuss Vita Goldstone, John Curtin, Frank Anstey, the Wobblies, Father Mannix. Yeah, Archbishop Manning. Father Manning. He, he was Father Manning. He was Monsignor. He was Monsignor Manning. Doris and Morris Blackburn, Balaguren, you know, all will be mentioned. And we have a range of speakers. People like um, now the person to open the conference is Barry Jones. Barry Owen Jones. He Barry told Owen me Jane. once many years He'll ago. He'll tell me tomorrow too, probably. <laughs> that, 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 that his name was Barry Owen Jones. Well, he's going to be the person in the conference. Uh, other speakers and a range of professors and associate professors and doctors, Murray Goot, Stuart McIntyre, Joy DeMusi, Val Noon, Caroline Rasmussen, Kate Lang, Peter Love, Ross McMullins, Anne-Marie Jordans, Dr. Jennifer Grounds, who's a medical doctor, and Paul Barrett. That's some heavy art- artillery there. And we'll discuss for 1916-17 conscription plebiscites. We'll discuss the Vietnam War, the war-making powers now, and the whole of issue, how Australians have for a long time opposed unjust wars. Because I've often said on the last few years here, twice we had plebiscites in World War One to vote for conscription, and twice we voted no. 1916 and 1917. All around the world, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the British, the Americans, the French, ever had conscripts. Australia had no conscripts, because twice we said no. Yep. So the conference tomorrow, we'll look at our history, and remember, you know, we're some proud parts of Australian history. And a lot of the campaigns opposed conscription came out as working class areas like Brunswick and Coburg. Yes. John yes. Curtin, Frank Anstey, mm. uh, Frank Hyatt, all lived around those areas. Bella Guren, all lived in those areas. There's another thing uh, historical that I thought of during the week, Glenn. Please tell. I thought of you when I was thinking of the bag man or oh, the poor bag man. Uh, is he in Turkey yet? He's um, having a cold, refreshing wine and some Tucker last photo I saw of him. He's Where? A, uh, Greece. Oh, in Greece. Well, it's just, just a stone's throw away, really. Well, a pebble's throw away. It is. A shell's throw away. I don't know why he wants to go to Turkey for. I really wish he wouldn't go. He's there now, my dear. But I did think of him on uh, the 15th of May mm-hmm. because I thought, ah, oh, yes, Bagman. The 15th of May, 1969. Oh, yes. Clary O'Shea. Good Lord, I've forgotten that. The Secretary of the Tramways Union, that's when he was jailed on the 15th of May 1969 because his union, and he refused to, for his union to pay fines for a so-called illegal industrial action. And that's what spurred the bagman into trade unionism. I remember Clary, I, I was a friend of Clary's. He, Clary always said that women shouldn't drive trams. He never believed that women would be able to drive trams because they were biologically unsuited to driving trams. Well, I put that aside. I'm tired of, I became very tired of arguing about that. Not that I wanted to drive a tram, I can assure you. A train, maybe, yes. A plane, yes, but not a tram. But that's so, that was, that was a while back, 1969. It's 48 years ago. The resulting yeah. strike wave of when Clary was jailed mm. actually 
broke the back of those penal powers, those yes. anti-strike uh, right. you know, sort of provisions, yes. and that in turn allowed the Australian trade union movement to win major improvements in wages, in hours, in annual leave and sick leave over the next 10 years, right up till 1979 and 1980 that won these games. But, of course, that's a, so it's a significant date for us all mm. because it's a battle which we now have to fight again. Don't you get sick of fighting the same battle but again? If, if you don't fight, you lose. I, I but watch they bring the, it up again, you've got to fight it again. I watched, well, there's new, there's, new, there's new areas. I watched the Channel 2 News last night and um, my old friend Dr Paul Adams is there from VUT. What the latest employer process is, we saw it at CUB and a few places, where you get rid of your staff... But you're bringing new staff on lesser wages, lesser conditions. You know, you don't sack all your staff. You sack most of your staff, and you reemploy people on lesser pay, lesser conditions. It's happening across the board. It's it's um, the fight's never over, and it's not just about you know, it's it's it's, it's capitalism. Until we can change a system based on profit, this problem won't go away. Now, speaking of dates, my dear, next week it's 50 years since the referendum on recognising Aboriginal Australians as people in their own nation. So it is. 50 years next year, 1967. For about 190 years of white colonisation, the original Australians weren't even recognised in their own land. They'd been there for 50,000 years. I mean, 50,000 yes. years. And you weren't, rec- you were considered, you weren't even considered human in your own land. So, April, so May 27, 1967, we said, yes, we recognise Indigenous Australians as, as human beings. And a long way, we've come a long way and it's a long way to go from We've that We've still period. got a hell of a long bloody way to go, haven't we? You've got a rural area, and that attitude is not... <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of bad redneck areas in Australia, my dear. Mm, and some pockets in the city, and some pockets sitting in bloody Parliament House as oh, well. Oh, there's some very loud pockets in there. Anyway, it's not for my pocket. I might empty my pockets and uh, depart. I believe you've got... Um, the, is it all right, Bolshevik coming in soon? I beg your pardon. Is that what, what she's called in the papers? Oh, Back in the day, Jack Bakuli, Bolshevik. Yeah, I, it, it was Irene Bolshevik. Oh, bloody Jack! What, is, is, is he uh, dead? Is he? Yeah, I was going to say, is he dead yet? Well, Turek Times is gone, so it's sort of and, something. Uh, to yes, it, the uh, well, the Turek Times went when the dog died. The editor. That's true. Anyway, it's well, it Fido when when Fido kicked the bucket. It was back at the wrong last tree. Last time I, last time I saw Jack. I shouldn't call him Jack like he's a mate of mine. He's no mate of mine, I can assure you. He had the shop um, in Smith Street, Collingwood. Which shop? It was uh, like a second-hand shop. A pawn shop? No, a second-hand okay. shop. It was, it bought, you know, good second-hand. You could buy second-hand goods. They're quite okay. a, a good a, a range of them to quite a, like, well, a variety of stuff. Anyhow, it's time for me to go for the interchange. Now, I can't interchange the bag man. He's um, living a life of luxury over Somewhere in the in Asia Minor region. Oh, so almighty. I would depart. And listeners, don't forget, tomorrow, please come along to the conference at Saxon Street, Brunswick, to remember the great campaigns we've fought here against the wars, but World War One and Unjust Wars to follow. And until I return on Susan's program next week, I will say, Chocula. Chocula. Mr. Pressman, here's some news You can print it if you choose Just to show the times have changed a lot Though it may sound strange to you It is absolutely true You can believe it or not since making more be became all the rage Has even got into the old birdcage My canary has circles under his eyes Under his eyes He used to whistle a prisoner's song Now he just snake-ups the whole day long My canary has circles under his eyes 
His only pals are the meadowlark, just a tiny sparrow. But I'm afraid when he's in the park, he leaves the straight and narrow. I raised this bird in a mess so strict, now I feel certain I'm being tricked. My canary has circles under his eyes. His only pals are the meadowlark, just a tiny sparrow. But I'm afraid when he's in the park, he leaves the straight and narrow. I raised this bird in a manner so strict, now I feel certain I'm being tricked. My canary has circles under his eyes. We leave the, um, I'm not sure, was that the Jelly Bean Jug Band? Anyway, it was the Conway uh, Brothers. They had so many different names for their same group. I get confused with it. It doesn't matter. My canary has circles under his eyes. I'm sure a lot of canaries have circles under their eyes with what's been going on in the world. Irene, good morning. Good morning, Miss Susanna. And I'm sitting in the bagman's seat. Yes, I've told him that he shouldn't. Uh, no, know, he, that he shouldn't have moved out of it. That he has to watch it. You know, yeah. the, really, yes, but you know how it is. I was a bit concerned too. I'm a bit concerned about him being going to Turkey. I really am. Well, yeah, I didn't think it was a great time to be going to no, Turkey. No, I don't think so at all. <laughs> Um, not a great idea at all. I, I, I think Greece is bloody a bit close to Turkey too. Well, so, yeah, like Greece, is, Greece would be all right, I would think. But yeah. I, I think in Turkey you'd want to be fairly considered about where you go, really, wouldn't you? Yes. Yes. I wouldn't move too far from where I started off from. Yeah, <laughs> really. precisely. Uh, and even then I'd be very um, worried about it. Oh, well, well... Look, look, listener, if anything happens to the bag man, you'll hear it first on 3CR. Oh, well, I'll, we'll be over there looking after him if something looks like it's going to happen. I think we might go over, won't we? And we could start well, <laughs> World War Three. Well. Uh, look, I, I do think they'll probably be... Look, I know I was in Turkey not long after there'd been the big uh, demonstration in Taksim Square where they'd been the demonstrators had been attacked and all sorts of stuff about... Three years ago, probably a bit over three years ago, um, and it was it was okay. I mean, and I had lots of interesting discussions with young men and women about their what was going on because their view at the time was that, and I think it's pronounced Erdogan, Erdogan, not Erdogan, uh, was starting to interfere with the sort of secular. Uh, advanced state that it had been, and they were all concerned about what was going to happen. Uh, but the problem is for them is that when they do demonstrate, he comes out with force, and mm. he doesn't muck around. And now he's got—he's almost a dictator. Now he's got great powers. So, it'd be interesting to see what he does. And my brother was there. Was it last year? And he sent me a photo of himself in and enjoying a Turkish coffee in this square. And then they left off to Greece, and two days later, the these bombs went off right on the spot where that photograph was taken. We'd been taken, having a coffee. Killing all these German uh, tourists. Yes. There was actually aimed at tourists, that bomb, but there was no one else. They're the only people who go there. Yes. Well, Taxim Square, yeah, I was, I was staying in a hotel overlooking Taxim Square, and it's a it's an area that's got a lot of tourists around there. And, um, and the interesting, I mean... It's when you think about the change in Turkey, it's a bit sad, really. Uh, when you think how they came from nothing, how they yeah, built themselves, and Ataturk sort of, yeah, Ataturk, what uh, a man, 
at Ataturk. Kamal Ataturk. Mm. And there's photos of him. I don't know if they're still there. There were photos of him all over the place in public, big ones, and overlooking Taxim Square. But, um, yes, it's... Uh, He's doing it gradually in a way. He hasn't put everybody in a burqa yet, but he did start to... There was this incentive, apparently, for women to wear the scarf. An incentive? Uh, yes, financial incentive. <laughs> and, um, so, But there's plenty of young people who are very much against it, but I think he's really got them, everybody by the short and curlies at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, Irene, before I ask you who you have nominated as Tool of the Week, yes, I thought I might go for the Root Jaboot Award. Oh, please. And, um, though, of course, I'm very cruel to say it because it's been a pretty difficult couple of months for George Columbaris, isn't it? Oh, you're going to pick on him again. <laughs> Time, you know, I mean, poor man. After he'd underpaid staff by two and two point six million dollars, yes, to ha- underpaid them two point <laughs> six million. I mean, the amount of that money—it it just it's huge. It takes my breath. And they're away. not earning five hundred thousand each a year 2. either, so it's a lot of people. Million. Mm. And then, of course, he was charged with assault. After we saw the video of him shoving a bloody kid, yes. a, soccer, a young soccer fan, because the young soccer fan said, oh, I'll pay you. Yeah, pay, pay your workers properly. You lousy bastard. <laughs> and that caused, and he's been charged. He's, uh, he's been yes. charged. Um, it's a simple assault. It'll, it won't uh, yeah, come to much. All the same, he's, mm. I'm glad he's been charged. Well, a silly it. thing to do, really. Oh, well, it just shows you he, he loses his temper and as goes As much as on. I've felt like assaulting people. Yes, well, you know it's not often, worth it because you're going to get, I'd rather not be in the dock. But now he's facing legal action over food poisoning. Oh, yes. Food yes. poisoning oh. at his Hellenic Republic restaurant. Now, so it's an alleged mass food poisoning outbreak. Oh, really? One man uh, uh, from North Fitzroy, Mr David Schroeder, good, good on you, David, he's suing uh, George and the restaurant and the maid establishment group that he runs after he ate food, which left him violently ill. But um, at the start of this month, he filed a writ in the county court saying became seriously ill with, and I've got to read it here, um, norovirus encephalitis. Ooh. Oh, well, it infects the brain with encephalitis, oh, so he must have had nice. inflammation on the brain. At the, t- oh, dead, mm. at the time, the Hellenic Republic... The restaurant, I'm not saying a word about the Hellenic Republic, but the Hellenic Republic <laughs> restaurant had to close its doors for 36 hours when dozens of patrons who'd eaten from a set menu suddenly came down ill with vomiting and diarrhoea and all the other nasty stuff you get with food poisoning. Well, one of them has taken out a writ against him. Mm. And I say, good on you, and root your boot, George Calambaris, you'd bloody deserve it. If anyone deserves it, it's you. Yeah, when you get arrogant in your wealth, it's uh, and you and you walk all over people. Well, and there's plenty of them do, of course. But when you get caught at it, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's deserving. But I, I'm not sure. I don't know what norovirus is and how you get it. I mean, how it presents itself. But in obviously, food, it's some but, kind uh, of food poisoning. Yes, what, what they did. How 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 it happened? No idea. because I don't know what how it's. How it comes. Yeah. Um, it's hard to uh, get food poisoning these these days. Well, it is, yes. I mean, people so, wash their hands. Hopefully. People in the kitchen wash their hands. Oh, I hope so. I hate to think about that when I go out to eat. I try not to think about what's going on in the kitchen sometimes. Mm. Oh, it's, but uh, not that I go out to eat very often anymore. But, uh, well, it's a cost of money. Uh, we, I, we, I did, was shattered uh, dinner at. Um, the Hellenic Republic, uh, not that long ago, a few months ago. Well, you're ago. lucky you missed out on the bloody I was. poisoning from the norovirus encephalitis. <laughs> oh, well, no, but you could have sued yourself. I could have sued. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, wow, well, I should, yes. I don't think I want to be sick to sue, though. I think it I need a class with... action if, if there are lots of people. Yes. They could all, but one, perhaps the others will now that the first one Well, has they might join in. Yes. Yes. You've got to, yes. Um, now, my tool of the week. I must say, and I, I don't know whether I'm going to pronounce this correctly, is Sebastian Sakita. I don't know it's Sakita, when it's double C, Sakita or Sakita. Can you spell it for me? S-I-C-C-I-T-A. Sakita. Sakita. Yeah. Now, this is a manager from CUB. It's a or, CUB or even brewery actually, manager. Or actually Sakita. 
Sushita. Yeah. <laughs> not, not at uh, the Sushita. kind of name you'd want in Australia. Hey, hey, you hey. over there, Sushita. Sushita. Okay, so Mr. Old Sebastian, the CUB brewery manager, um, in the Senate inquiry yesterday, was presented with his diary, which described his strategy to overcome the six-month protest line out the front of CUB. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of Mm, course. Because he wasn't happy with them, of course. Not happy. And one of the things things he wanted to do was shoot the shit out of them. Mm, Well, we're not allowed to do that in Australia. (laughs) And then he wanted to cut their supply lines, starve them out through legal fees and defamation. So he's prevented, he was quite shocked to be presented with his diary in the Senate inquiry, because how did they get it, of course? And any, well, you so, but he write says, things in diaries. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you don't, do you? No. I never used to keep, I've never kept a diary. <laughs> um, so he, uh, he attempted to retain it by saying, it's mine. So at least he... He did say in the Senate inquiry, this is my diary in which I've written, shoot the shit out of them and uh, and starve them out through defamation. And so that's what goes on behind the scenes when uh, workers are trying to save their entitlements and their jobs. And because if people think managements are always nice, no, they're not. No, their bottom line is dollars and uh, and their jobs and uh, keeping the workers under control and not giving them too much. So he's the tool of the week. I suppose, too, that he could say that, that wanting to, that a diary entry saying shoot the shit out of them was... Um, uh, well, I wouldn't uh, take it... ..was um, hyperbole. Yes, I'd say so. I wouldn't take it as though seriously. he was seriously going to go out with a shotgun or anything. Mm, no. He wasn't going to go... And, but, uh, but, he wasn't going to line up someone to go and <laughs> knock them off with it. You know, no, but it's uh, it's just an interesting insight into uh, his thinking during the course of it. It was never going to resolve, was it? When you've got a manager who thinks like that, precisely. How can you resolve anything? So, uh, I, I, I do recall a terrible thing that happened back in '96 when there was a picket line outside a place in New Zealand for a very good reason, which I forget. I will remember by next week, and. Uh, <laughs> It takes a week to remember. No, yeah. but uh, and some the, the mad bastard who owned the bloody the mushroom packing factory or whatever it was, but was absolutely furious with these women. You see, with these women workers who had a picket line, and he drove straight through them. One oh, woman yes. was killed. Oh, by his great big you know Land Rover thing. Oh. And at court, the judge said, well, the woman shouldn't have been on the road. She should not have been there. No. Meaning if you run down a picketer, it's all right because they shouldn't be there. No mention of how he'd gunned the car and gunned it at them and said, get out of the way and call them all sorts of it's names. It's That men call women. Yeah. So was he – Was he, cha- he was obviously charged. Yes, he was got he a acquitted? fine. He got a fine. Yes, for um, dangerous driving or something like that. Yes. Yeah. That, see, because if you have an accident in your car, it's your fault. It doesn't matter what happens. An accident, mm. you've got to say, yes. well, an accident shouldn't have happened. And just because these women were under my wheels, that well, I really, I, I, I should have been better control of my huge Land Rover and not done it. But one woman, di- the woman died. She was 43 years old and she had four children. I see. And, and if you take that literally then over there, if somebody happens to be in the middle of the road when you're driving along, you're allowed to run them over. So they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be on the road. Yeah. <laughs> so you can extrapolate that into uh, all sorts of things, can't you? How yeah, ridiculous. well, what I saw really was they're only picketers. They shouldn't be there. <gasps> well, but mind he- you, in the, during uh, down at Turalgan Hospital, just before the main nurses strike, we had a little um, walking off the job at Turalgan for various reasons. And uh, the picket line down there, the uh, orthopaedic surgeon tried to run them down. As he was driving into the maybe hospital. He was look, maybe he was looking for work. He wanted to break <laughs> yes, a few bones. Yes, he wanted bones. some bones broken. Yeah, so he, he went at them a bit, but they managed to scramble out of the way. Uh, yes, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? So I, I don't think that he would have got off with a fine if yeah, he'd well, hit anybody. Yeah, well, this yeah, was but in, I would hope not. This was in New Zealand, it's of course, outrageous. but it doesn't really matter where it was. The point You'd is have it, to appeal The that thing is, you don't hit people with your car. 
if you hit someone with your car, it's your fault. Yeah. I don't care if they were drunk and fell on the road in front no. of you. It's just, or, or, or if they jaywalked, they walked out. Yeah. It, or or uh, you went to a red light or you drove into a picket line. Well, if you drive deliberately, yes. Ah, uh, well, anyway. Anyway, I'll that's think a very... Of that later. And look, yes. one more award that uh, that the bagman used to always bring up, but it's fallen into sort of disuse. I, yes. almost, I almost said disrepute, but it's not. It's disuse, and it's uh, the blown can award. You'll have to get. We'll have to get the bagman to explain about that. What that really means, the blown can. <laughs> My mind's racing, and it is going to <laughs> the cash for comments. Broadcaster John Laws. Remember his cash oh, for is comments. He's still around. Yes. Yes, and it is. Yeah, he's still alive. Why isn't he? would you listen to him when he's getting paid to say, "Oh yes, I went down to the bank. Oh yeah, it's the, oh yeah, well, it's a wonderful well, it's, bank. It's yeah, the Bulger Bank. <laughs> oh, it's a beauty. You know, that's a, <laughs> He's getting paid to yeah, say, yeah, yeah. I was only angry because no one offered me cash for comments. Look, I would have said comments. We will, actually, listeners, just just think about that. We're quite prepared to. Cash for comments. (laughs) No, we're only joking. No, he's still on air. He's 81, the old perv. And I say perv with meaning. I'm meaning, meaningful. I say it meaningfully. Sorry, get that right. She's been drinking, listeners, don't worry. He is an old perv and he says... He says, this this madman, he says that he demands that women in, in his office wear short skirts and no. have bare legs. No. Because he says, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And when it was pointed out, when one woman pointed out to him that he can't get away with these things that he got away with in the 70s, he said that he said... I refuse to be bowed by political correctness. Well, political correctness, <laughs> listener, really uh, means what that means is I want to say whatever <laughs> racist, misogynist, homophobic, vile, bigoted things that I like. Yes. And if you stop me, that's politically correct. So that 81-year-old perv wants, demands that women who work in his office and do his, you know, sort of, Radio work for him because he doesn't do it himself. But it's he all doesn't bloody employ produced. them, does he? It's not yes. him. Well, but he doesn't. It's a matter. radio station, isn't it? It is. Well, maybe he owns half the radio yeah. station. There's not many, not much reason why to have the 81 year old cash for comments perv on air, would you? Well, what, um, I hope they're not doing it, are they? I hope they're not doing it. <laughs> they should have had a picket line outside his outside his office. Oh, someone might might uh, run run them down. I don't know why people listen to. Them. Why don't Why don't they just turn off? Why don't they go well, to some other radio station? They might, they, uh, look, there are plenty of other revolting men you can listen to. That's Sandyland. You, you look. You 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 want to hear some foul bastard? You can tune into him. You don't have yeah. to. Laws isn't the only foul bastard on air in Australia. Well, you see, the shock jocks in Sydney, you wouldn't, they wouldn't last 10 minutes down here, though, would they, do you reckon? No. They, they wouldn't last down here, I don't think. I, no. I, I think it's a Sydney thing. It is a Sydney thing. They have different it's, standards. Um, you have, because you have, who are they? Um, what's that? Jones? Is he still doing oh, it? Oh, the, who <laughs> is he? He's a football coach, isn't he? He He's used an to be a rugby coach. Football. Uh, well, fo- and I read a book about him that, Made certain imputations, but so I won't repeat on air. But uh, about him and his young rugby, because <laughs> he used to work at a couple yeah, of schools, boys' school, yeah. Mm. Um, and he was also, and we can mention, of course, not that we'd want to, because it's so dreary him being charged for hanging around the bloody toilets in London. In London, but yes. that's right, because he was, um, he was, uh, he was apprehended and charged and convicted. So we can say that, yes. That he was hanging around in a well-known. Not that I, not that I, frankly think that that should be against the law. Well, I think it should but, be against um, it when he goes into his anti-gay race. <laughs> when it's him, it should be. I do think that you know there was a bit of persecution of gay gays back in the day, there but uh, I really like it that he was arrested. There was, <laughs> was and Alan Jones should have learned a lesson from mm. that and not be going around bashing mm. gays himself. Well, that's the thing that he's such a. Uh, uh, what should I call him? Uh, you know, he's he's somebody who makes so many judgments about others, and yes. is prepared to shout it out from the rooftops on his program. Uh, that why not have a go at him about something like that? He's not a pure and clean sort of. 
he's got blameless such, young man. He's got such an awful voice. He's horrible. There's something about his voice that really yes, makes, I know, he's horrible. I make all those, <laughs> I get all those goosebumps, you know. <laughs> it's that voice yeah. something. Yes. Oh. Well, I suppose the closest to that would be Neil Mitchell uh, these days on on 3AW. Is it 3AW? One of those. I don't listen yeah. to something. When uh, uh, he's dead, I'm going to say something about him. Oh, okay. But I'll wait till he's dead. You want to wait? Yeah. Let's hope it won't be too long. <laughs> and then I can say what I've always wanted to say about him on air, but mm. I wouldn't because I, I'm concerned about turning up in the dock Well, that's myself. the thing. I'd be very concerned about that. Mind yeah. you, you probably haven't got much to give him if, uh, if he uh, did take you into the courts. No, but, but, the, but the radio station has. Yes. Well, he the thing would, is yeah. that with him, it was interesting, during the strike, um, I was This going, is the nurse's strike. Yes, yeah, the nurse's strike. I was going to Just be, in case you uh, forget. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Listener. It's the only strike that's occurred. In, <laughs> in case in case you forget, listener, this is Irene Bolger. <laughs> I'm calling her Irene. Do you remember Irene Bolger, the leader of the nurses um, during their great that wonderful strike. Well, back then I was going to be interviewed in one afternoon by it was a very nice man on Three AW back then, and he was a bit a little bit of a sort of lefty type, and I've forgotten his name, which is terrible. And I apologise if he happens to be listening to us. Uh, and he'd lined me up for an interview, and um, and then suddenly, and I'd had no uh, approaches at all from Neil Mitchell's program during the whole course of what was going on. He obviously wasn't going to bother. But then all of a sudden, I'm going on this other person's program in the afternoon, I get a phone call from his producer saying, oh, you know, he wants you to come on here instead and blah de blah I said, no, thank you. Yes, you said, no, thank you, of No, course. thank you. If he's not going to, you know, if he's only doing it because I'm going on this other program, mm. no, go away. So, yes, uh, he wouldn't have, uh, he wouldn't have, I don't think he thought I was worth interviewing, which was fine by me. I would like to have had a no, go. he's not worth talking to. <laughs> But uh, yes, it's three uh, AW. Yes, there. Well, the interesting thing this morning was on the ABC that um, with the uh, CFA and the uh, Metropolitan Fire Bra- Fire Brigade, well, the firefighters for the city of Melbourne, uh, there's a new. The uh, government has uh, state government has just announced a new. Set way of setting them up so that they're going to be separate bodies managed by separate bodies. Yeah. And uh, But the interesting thing was, and there's going to be about, I don't know how much, a, a fair bit of money given to the CFA to upgrade and do all sorts of things, but they don't listen because after he got off, uh, after um, he finished the Premier uh, and then people started to ring up, you get the CFA supporters ringing up going, oh, well, you know, this is not going to be any good. Uh, and Well, why not? Well, because we haven't got enough money. And Well, did you listen? Because he just said he was going to give you money. So there's this sort of knee-jerk, we want to have a fight about it still attitude. Yeah, there's uh, some very strange people involved with the CFA. Yes. Well, very I think odd. it gives an indication sometimes of... Uh, I'm not going to do something, say too much about country people. Well, having worked, lived in the country mm. myself, um, but there is a rather sometimes narrow concept of things by some people. You're saying that so well, Irene. <laughs> I admire your choice of words, <laughs> and um, and particularly within the CFA in more recent times about what's happening and their their desire to uh, to. Well, first of all, they had this desire to make sure they were removed enough from from the uh, from the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, so they couldn't boss them around in any way. Uh, <clears throat> but then they start carrying on about the effect that that's having on the CFA. So I think they need to calm down and just let things happen and see what happens without carrying on like pork chops. Yes, it was a very we? difficult. Um very di- difficult time for everyone. Well, you then know. you get the you know the liberals uh, interfering. You get Malcolm oh, yes. Turnbull interfering. Well, they see it and, as a uh, yeah, Trumbull saw it as a chance to so big mouth himself. God. Yeah. Well, it held up the EBA with the firefighters. Yeah. And um, but now that will be able to go through now that this is this new new uh, laws are going to go through about who's in charge of what and why and all that sort of stuff. So that that'll be a good thing. 
They'll be yeah, able to settle of, their EPA. Yeah, it was sort of it was going to be the boss. That was it, wasn't it? It was yes. We can't have fire um, met, uh, professional firefighters, paid ones, bossing us around, telling us what to do. Um, so there will still be there's still going to be those thirty three or thirty four with this mixed. But the thing is, it's trying to bring them into the twenty first century because back when in places like Ringwood and uh, and slightly outer suburbs, which yeah. are now almost the central suburbs yeah. of Melbourne, back in the day they were sort of in the bush. They were when those CFA groups were set up. But it's all changed, and so they have to catch up with the times. And understand it is the 21st that they're century. metropolitan areas. And we have things like wireless, we have mobile yeah. phones, mm. we've got all those big towers. That, you know, you're not in some little country town which is called Upper Fern Tree Gully no. anymore. No. Well, I <laughs> or, lived in... or, or as you said, Ringwood. Ringwood. Or Tarnit. Oh, yes. Well, that's on the outer wilds of the Melton wild, wild was, west. Um, <laughs> Melton was, was a little. Sort of yeah, it's a town. tiny little tiny place little now. Village. Yes, but it's a suburb now. It's just on the, you know. Yeah, and the way it's spreading, it's uh, yeah. we'll we'll be meeting up with Ballarat soon. It'll yes, be one great big city. Oh mm. dear! And look at the time. How oh, my fast God. the How time goes. We I was going to about much, and we don't even have Bagman here taking up all the the airspace as he normally does. I don't say. Well, no, I, I do don't miss mean him. It. I, don't I must say, it. I do miss him. Yeah, um, but uh, hopefully they're having a good time in Turkey. It's like it's actually oh, the markets there. And when you go down and you see you see all the uh, herbs and spice, all the spices and stuff, uh, you just go crazy. Yeah. Look, I, I've, I've only seen the markets in Turkey on my DVDs of Rick Stein. Ah, yes. And it just looks. I think I want to go there, yes. but of course I would only be going home. My family came from Turkey about 6,000 BCE. Oh, really? According to the genetic um, set Oh, oh, that. You had that done. Yes, I'm, I'm in the I want world, to get that done. Um, you know, database for the Human Genome Project. Oh. Which was set up in Iceland. From, it started off in Iceland. They know all about the human genome in Iceland. Well, Iceland are rather they're, forward. It's a rather forward country, actually. They know, <laughs> yeah, but they know all about the human yes. bloody you know, genome. They've known it for a long time, which is why they're not inbred. But, no, they set it up. It would have been in the late, I think it was 1989. Oh, okay. That's, uh, I have some, heard of it, yes. For some reason, and I'm in that, oh. in this human genome project world databank of, you know, DNA things, and... Uh, they said, oh, I'm from uh, Cappadocia. And I had to look Don't that look up. It up. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't have Google. Of course, oh, I didn't even so have a computer at the time. Oh, my goodness. So I had to go to you some to go library to <laughs> and look up what, where it was. It's part of Turkey. And we were there in 6000 BCE. Well, my genes, my family was. Oh. Interesting, isn't it? Fascinating. Well, I'd love to. So, yeah. I'm, so I'm Turkish. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> It's, that's exotic enough, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I'd like to find out, because I don't know who my father was on my side of the family, so I'd love to find out what my other side of the family is. Yes, indeed. Um, of course you would. I think I might get my DNA done quite soon and just see. Everyone's doing it now, aren't they? It's sort mm. of all, all available online, but look and at the time. And we all go back to the same place, Africa. Yes. <laughs> So those who think they're white power, yeah. no, you've got you're, black you're in your family. You're mad thing. Yes. Okay, now it's time for us to be out of here because, yes. look, it's 9.59. We're a little bit over time. So, Sorry. <laughs> so Dare to struggle. We have to do it properly. Let's oh. go out in the same old way. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from left after breakfast. <laughs>